I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and this is One Weird Chick. As a podcaster who covers true crime and supernatural happenings, my inbox is usually flooded with requests and suggestions of cases to cover. Amongst those suggestions are a few messages from people who work as specialists in their fields, offering interviews for the podcast. On April 10th at 8.16pm, my phone alerted me that I had received a message through social media. It was from Heather Lee, the founder of Exploration Paranormal, a group that specializes in paranormal investigation. Heather is also a board member of the acclaimed Warren Legacy Foundation, a certified EVP technician, and had just released her first book when she messaged me. I jumped at the opportunity to bring all of you weirdos more exclusive content, and after agreeing on a time, we are underway making this very special episode of One Weird Chick for you all. For those of you who have been longtime listeners of One Weird Chick, you might recall my interview with Paranormal Existence Research Society founder, Bill Slevin. As is the nature with paranormal research, I was delighted to discover that Heather and Bill ran in the same circles. A few weeks after reaching out to me via social media, Heather and I had the opportunity to meet in person when Bill introduced the two of us at a convention. I'm sure you'll agree after listening to her interview, Heather is a lady of many talents. Be sure to check out the links in this month's episode to purchase her book, take her classes, and learn more about how her investigation team can help you should you need it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this very special episode of One Weird Chick. Well, please join me in welcoming Heather Lee to One Weird Chick. Hi, Heather. Thank you for joining me. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, uh, Heather, stop me if I'm wrong, but you are, and this is quite an impressive title, the founder of Exploration Paranormal and the Regional Director of Services for the Northeast USA as well as being a board member for the Warren Legacy Foundation. You're also a certified paranormal investigator, researcher, and certified EVP technician with a PhD that I can't even begin to pronounce. Did I leave anything out? No, no. I mean, there's some other things that I do, but, you know, I I always try to keep busy. (laughs) A woman after my own heart. (laughs) I love that. So... On the PhD, tell me again what exactly your PhD is in, because it's very, very impressive. It's in metaphysical and humanistic science from the Institute of Metaphysical and Humanistic Studies. And um, I specialized in paranormal science. They have a whole bunch of different levels that you can do. They have ufology, cryptozoology. They also do religious degrees um, and theology courses. And it was just a great, great experience. And I, I've loved it and it actually changed my mind on how I view the paranormal now. 
That's fantastic. That's that's a um, a really impressive um, undertaking. I I know when um, I was younger, uh, courses like that just didn't exist, or if they did, they were very few and far between. And as you know, growing up um, for me in Australia, it was very different. We were very sheltered in comparison to the things that are available to you here in the U.S. So, wow, what an undertaking! Now, this might be a little bit of an ignorant question, but with a PhD like that. What does that sort of set you up for? What are your qualifications with a PhD like that? Yeah, basically, it's not the same as a four-year university, of course. It's from a secular, you know, as more of like um, the theology degrees that you could get. It's set along that line. And Dr. D- I'm sorry, I thought I muted this. <laughs> That's okay. Um, and Dr. Douglas is amazing. He's here in Clearwater, and he runs everything. It's all online. And basically, by the time we're done with the course, we are trained and, uh, you know, experienced because we also do different. He sends us on little missions that he has us do when we're studying. And it's mostly we're there to help people. We can start our own paranormal teams effectively, efficiently and ethically. We can, um, you know, write, write books, um, give lectures. I know um, I'm going to be hopefully doing some college lectures next year. Oh, fantastic. And it's it's just tough because it's one of those things where I can't go to a university and be like, hey, I have a PhD. I want to teach paranormal classes because they don't really do that yet. But that is my ultimate goal in this field is to make it more reputable so that way we are in universities. And I, I just can't stand the term pseudoscience. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I want that pseudo removed from the name of the, <laughs> from the name of it. Well, I tell you what, um, I, I mean, I'm a college graduate, but I'll happily re-enroll to come and take a paranormal class. That would be fantastic. Uh, again, when I was younger growing up in Australia, I remember uh, it was the height of the 90s. So shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer were was very popular. And there was one college in another state in Australia, separate from the one that I lived in, that taught a class on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And I desperately wanted to take it. My little 16 year old heart couldn't wait to take a a course as eclectic as that. And um, that's very much how I feel about taking a a class in paranormal as well. So keep me posted if that ever happens. Uh, Well, more and more universities and schools are starting to expand. Cause like I'll do, um, I just did one last Halloween for um, Truckee Meadows Community College out in Reno. Okay. And they do, in the fall, um, around Halloween time, they do actual haunted series where they have different authors and, you know, paranormal experts give and teach classes virtually. Right. So, and I think there's a couple schools, there's a school in Texas that does the same thing and... So they're they're starting to open up and let us in. Fantastic. I love that because, um, yeah, I... A friend of yours and somebody who has been on One Weird Chick before, Bill Slevin, um, has also talked about sort of the um, the ethical and moral approach to the paranormal and, you know, when you see people who are doing it for entertainment value versus people who actually do it for a profession. And one thing that you mentioned um, that he also mentioned that I I really commend you on is the fact that you want to help people. You're not doing it for entertainment value. You truly are trying to go in and, and help these these people and better their lives um, or free themselves from the paranormal depending on their situation. Yeah. 
Has there been a particular case that has really stuck with you? Something that you'd like to share to my listeners? Yeah, there's one case. It was just before we moved from Vegas back to Florida. And um, it's a very heartbreaking case. I had the team that I was on, uh, members of the team had gone in and they tried helping her, but they came out with no evidence whatsoever. So then I tried to take on the case a little bit and I went in with my husband who's on my, because my team is myself, my husband and my son. So it's just the three of us. Wonderful. It's like a family uh, business. (laughs) It it is. (laughs) And we, uh, my husband and I, because my son wasn't 18 at the time, we went in and just talked to her and we had cameras rolling while we were talking to her and it just, nothing was there. But it did seem odd that she was, wouldn't let us in. Like it's an, it was an apartment that was split. We couldn't go on the side that her uh, son had a room. And from what I understood, the investigators couldn't go there either. But once we tried to tell her that there was nothing there, it, it was so, it's heartbreaking. And I actually had to take time off from doing residential cases because I had her on the phone with me crying. I'm not crazy, I'm not crazy. And she was like 80 some years old. Oh, gosh. So it, it was, like, so heartbreaking. And I, I think that one is going to stick with me for a while because I still tear up when I think about that one. Yeah, because where is the line, you know, between um, perhaps somebody's augmented view on reality where perhaps they are just getting older in age and perhaps they are sensing things that may not be as malicious as they might think. So, right. oh, that, yeah, that is heartbreaking. Has there been a case where you've gone in and found clear evidence of something paranormal going on? Yeah, um, I did a case, uh, again, the old team that I was on, a group of researchers went in first, they came out and they were 100% dead sure it was demonic. <laughs> so they wow. they sent the others of us that had a little bit more experience because the first team didn't have as much experience as some of us did. So we went in and during that case we had, we caught, um, threatening evps we i was physically attacked oh my goodness like i my legs were swiped out from underneath me i was thrown up in the air the investigator i was with his eyes turned completely black he lost track of time we could see um i saw in the closet like a black shadow figure standing there in um where else was there in the daughter's bedroom because what it was is the daughter was dabbling in witchcraft and she didn't know what she was doing and I don't think the daughter caused the paranormal activity. I truly think it was there. Right. And um, because it was just an angry spirit that was probably mad that the daughter was practicing what was going on. And when we were in the daughter's room, it was real weird. She had her dresser mirror and her vanity mirror facing each other. Oh. And while we're conducting the investigation, the vanity mirror started shaking. Oh, that's terrifying. Near it. So it was like, okay. And what struck me funny on that one is after we went in twice and then gave her the evidence, I mean, we must have had over 40 EVPs that were clear EVPs that there was no doubt that that's what they were. We, um, the, the mom put the home up for sale and sold it and moved it. She actually even moved out of state. Oh my she goodness. Didn't anything to do with it. She left. And I was like, something told me to go to the real estate listing. So I went to Zillow, looked up the address and going through the photos in one of the photos there was a shot of their her office and in the computer screen it was reflecting into the corner of the room and you can see distinctly two people 
standing side by side but you know there's nobody standing there because you can see it in the actual photo but on the computer screen there was two people standing there so there was obviously something there for a long time prior to this family moving in yeah yeah it definitely was something he was just an angry spirit because when when i got attacked i stood up and i started screaming i treated it like it was a four-year-old child i would have too do that we don't treat people like that why are you and it was like the minute i did that the room got brighter and there was no more activity the rest of the night Nice. I like that. So let me ask you then, because I asked Bill a similar question when he was talking about his investigations. How do you go about cleansing a place or I don't know if curing a place is the right word to use? What is what is your process in having a spirit move on or move out? Right. Well, of course, unfortunately, spirits have free will, just like we do. Of course. So, you, you, you know, you can ask as nice as you want. You can be demanding. Um, but the number one thing to do is to educate the client. Let them know either A, there's nothing to be afraid of, or B, they might need a priest to come in and do something. But I also tell people that we need to cleanse the home and, and investigate the home based on our client's religious beliefs. Okay. And that's why I seem to get called into a lot of cases that, you know, when they're dabbling with witchcraft or because that's what I practice. So when I cleanse like the home that we were just talking about, the daughter was dabbling in witchcraft and that's what, you know, the mom wasn't religious. So that's the way we cleansed it. And I basically go through and I start, of course, at the top of the stairs and I use cascaria on all the windowsills. And then I do a little um, pentacle or you can do a cross um, with the cascaria and then I have someone following behind me burning sage as we work our way through the house what is cascaria it is the crushed eggshells of black hens oh there you go as somebody who has no um denominational preference I never heard of that before that's that's incredible wow yeah it, it's it comes in little ketchup cups I was about to say is it if you go to the is it readily available powder yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Wow. I, I have a ton of it. Why? Well, I, I was going to say it sounds like it comes in handy, so I'm glad you do. Mm-hmm. <gasps> yeah, oh. yeah, you can use, I mean, you can even use cascaria like on regular cleaning routines because um, basically what it is is the theory behind it, and it's all about intention and belief, um, but the theory behind it is the eggshell protects the embryo while it's waiting to become a chicken. Right. Essentially, or a baby chick. So that is... Um, and voodoo practices use it too. Um, so it's believed that the protective properties of it will help a person as well. So you can use the crushed powder in, you know, dishwater. Um, when you mop, throw it in your water a little bit. And it's just, you know, it's a powder and it ends up dissolving. So I, I've known people to throw it in their clothes in the washing machine. Just, you know, just a little sprinkle after they do a paranormal investigation. Yeah, you don't want to bring any of that home, I suppose. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay, so we're talking about sort of more current things that are happening for you at the moment, but let's let's sort of go back to where it all began. I know when you and I first met, um, you were just about to release a, a book of yours, which we'll speak on in just a little bit. But uh, you mentioned you you're from Nevada originally, and what sort of sparked your interest in the paranormal? Where did this all begin for you? Uh-huh. My interest started when I was 17. I started seeing images of my grandfather. He would be at the foot of my bed, the side of my bed, walking down the hallway. And back then, this was in the 80s, we 
there was no internet, so I had no idea what was going on. And it was weird because the belief back then was in order for a place to be haunted, someone had to have died there or right. had been attached to that property. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, we didn't have the information we have now. So it was a home that he had never been in. We had bought it years after he had passed. So he had no connection to it outside of my grandmother lived with us. And that's what we kind of thought was, you know, might've been happening. So I just started researching. And from there, anytime we went on vacation, I did the ghost tours. I would talk to the investigators giving the tours. Um, We spent a lot of time in Gettysburg because that was one of our favorite places to go on vacation. And um, I spent a lot of time learning from Mark Nesbitt, who does the haunted Gettysburg tours up there and was always asking him questions. And constantly, he he was probably like, get away from me, kid, (laughs) because I was constantly talking to him. Right. And it was just kind of something I was always interested in. Uh, Always, whenever we'd go on vacation, I'd look for the haunted books, you know, wanting to know where the haunted locations were. I was very interested in history. So I did a lot of historical research as well. And uh, it wasn't until, I'm trying to think, probably about six, seven years ago now, where I actually dove in. And instead of doing it as a hobby or just something I was interested in reading in, I actually dove in and I started, that's when I started my PhD program, joined a paranormal team and uh, eventually developed into starting my own team from there. That's amazing Um, for me, and and this will be no surprise to my listeners because I spoke about it when Bill and I uh, sat down to chat. For me, it was my dad's influence. He always really liked spooky movies and things like that. So I watched The Exorcist when I was way too young. Um, actually, without my dad's permission, he was like, "Okay, we'll hi- we'll like you know get this from Blockbuster on VHS, and we'll sit down and we'll watch this together. So like, if you're scared, we can turn it off." And yeah, no, I just went ahead and watched it by myself, and it traumatized me, um, but like a good traumatized, not a bad traumatized. Um, and then from there on out, um, yeah, my my life has has revolved around the the paranormal and the supernatural. It's it's something that. Um, it's weird. I take a lot of joy in it, but it's a strange joy. It's, it's, it's a joy that not a lot of people, I think, can understand with the exception being yourself and probably uh, most of my listeners. <laughs> right. And my husband even laughs because whenever we go and do something, <laughs> it's like we go on dolphin cruises on, um, in St. Augustine, or not St. Augustine, in St. Pete, yeah. you know, the Clearwater area. Mm-hmm. Or we'll just go around and I'll be like, on the cruise, everybody's like, oh, look at the dolphins. And I'm looking in the distance. I'm like, that building's haunted. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, that one. And then I'd start talking about the stories of them being haunted. And my husband's just enjoy the dolphin cruise. I do love the fact that your husband and your son are part of your investigative team because uh, my husband wants nothing to do with anything spooky. He'll watch, you know, a spooky movie with me. Um, in fact, he'll always preface it of like, let's watch a movie, not a scary one. Like, let's just watch like an action film. Uh, but he knows how much I love spooky things so much so that he actually proposed to me on Friday the 13th, uh, knowing full well it was Friday the 13th. And it was actually, I, I don't recall off the top of my head the year we got engaged, but I remember the next day was Valentine's Day. So he 
he knows better than to propose to me on Valentine's Day. I'm not one of those kind of romantic uh, types, but he's like, hey, you know what? It's Friday the 13th, the day before. Jess is going to love this. And she won't be expecting it because Valentine's Day is the next day. And yeah, he got me. He, he did. But um, yeah, I think that's his, that's his extent of his enjoyment of, the, um, of, of anything spooky. He leaves the rest to me. Uh, yeah, my husband won't watch horror movies or anything like that, which is funny. He doesn't like the ghost movies. He's never watched any of The Conjuring. But he comes and with you what ended up on the investigations. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no, that, that, those priorities need what to just up, shift. <laughs> right. What ended up happening is um, the team that I was on in Vegas was kind of falling apart. And a lot of us were leaving and going our own ways. Um, but it was during COVID. So, of course, yeah. was, you know, we weren't investigating. So we all kind of started doing our own thing. And I was continuing doing investigations and doing stuff. And of course, you know, he didn't want me going to residentials alone. Smart. He didn't want me going to these places alone, which is, you know, I completely agree with him. So he decided to join in. But my son had done several things prior with the last team I was on, and he was already interested in it. And it was funny because after I had made the announcement that we were starting a family, a family team, yeah. we got a call from uh, Motion Picture Video. Oh, wow. Feature a family of paranormal investigators in a documentary. So oh, that that's fantastic. Launched, launched the team officially. Yeah. What a way to launch your team. Wow. With like your own media release and everything. That's fantastic. Right. Very cool. Well, like I mentioned, um, and I, I probably actually haven't made this clear about how you and I met, um, to my listeners, but, um, Heather actually sent me a message via, uh, one of my, um, social media pages saying, Hey, um, if you're looking for guests, I'd love to be involved. And me being a podcaster and having to do my due diligence was like, okay, I need to look into, make sure this is a, a, a person with, you know, accreditation, which <laughs> you have far exceeded. And then of course, um, Bill, I spoke to Bill Slevin and said, Hey, this, um, this woman by the name of Heather Lee has reached out to me. And the second my name left, uh, sorry, your name left my lips. Bill was like, Oh, Heather's great. She's legit. Don't worry about her. She's not like weird or crazy or anything like um but then you and I actually met in person at a uh, horror convention here in Orlando and that's when I was like okay I've put a face to the name you're you're not a, a crazy person who just wants a couple of minutes of like let's of media attention let's sit down and chat but when I did meet you at this convention you were just about to release uh, your first book. And stop me if I'm wrong, it is called Ghosts of Southern Nevada Ghost Towns. Is that correct? Haunted, haunted Southern Nevada Ghost Towns. Haunted, sorry, my apologies. Uh, <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> tell me a little bit about that. Um, that book actually was inspired from the documentary we were in. We filmed, uh, it was called Real Haunts Ghost Towns, and they took us around to Goldfield, Gold Point, Nelson, we did investigations. We talked about the history of these towns. Uh, Mark Hall Patton from uh, Pawn Stars was in it with us as well. Oh, fun. And it was just, it kind of, the research was already done. So I kind of was like, you know what? I'm just going to throw this into a book form. A friend of mine was already writing for the History Press. He said, that's a great idea. He helped me put together the proposal. We added a few extra cities. So basically, it covers everything from Belmont South. 
Okay. But it includes all the Wild West historical stories. There's stories in there about Wyatt Earp and Virgil Earp because they resided in the Goldfield for a while. Um, Charles Manson hid out in Belmont, so there's stories surrounding his hiding out there. The um, Civil War deserters, both from the North and South, fled to uh, Nelson, and then they had their own mini Civil War in Nelson. So it was kind of interesting that that had happened, and it just kind of snowballed. So that one includes a little bit of everything, but it's more of a wild Western feel. I love that. And I, again, not to, you know, beat a dead horse, but again, being from Australia, I do have a lot of international listeners. So um, do you think even if people haven't been to these places, the historical value alone in your book is something that would really keep them engaged? It, it does. That's kind of why I wanted to take a different approach. So like they said, they always, when that, they talk to me about writing the book, they're like, we want to make sure that it includes mostly ghost stories. And I'm like, well, you know, because they didn't want it to go. They're like, we don't want anything about paranormal investigations or anything like that. But I kind of took it in the aspect, like the first chapter talks about what makes a ghost town. The second chapter talks about why ghost towns are haunted. And then it goes into each chapter, and I start off each chapter talking about the history of the town, how it was founded, and kind of a progression as to how each event might be fueling the paranormal activity in the town. Wow. And then I also share some investigation techniques we used, not so much in detail of how we used them, but different techniques on um, how we got the evidence we captured to be able to share that it was haunted. That's incredible. Okay, and not to, like spoil anything because I want people to go out and purchase your book and and read all about it but what does make a ghost town can you give us like just a little like snippet without spoiling anything in your book oh yeah that's no problem I actually classify ghost towns in three different levels um a complete ghost town which means nobody lives there which would be like rhyolite there's actually no residence whatsoever but it is a place you can go and actually walk around all the buildings are still there then i have what's called almost a ghost town i can't remember the exact term i used but um almost a ghost town or no working ghost town that's what it was working ghost town and this is where you have anywhere from you know 50 to 150 300 people living there that actually live work and still keep the area running the best they can and that would be considered like goldfield is okay. kind of there. And then I have almost a ghost town, which I labeled as for like uh, Boulder City. And Boulder City is still very functional. I think they have a couple thousand residents. So you wouldn't think of that as a ghost town. No. But it had 50,000 to 100,000 residents during the building of the Hoover Dam. Wow. So compared to what it was, it's essentially a ghost town from what it was. Right. And I think, I think when we hear the term ghost town, um, I think most people automatically just assume it's haunted or has some kind of paranormal connection. But yeah, it's kind of almost simpler than that in the sense of maybe it's abandoned, maybe it's just not what it used to be. So excellent. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, and real quick, and not all ghost towns are haunted. True, true, which is is weird that we would use the term ghost because let's just confuse everybody. (laughs) Right, because I have a chapter at the end of the book that lists all the ghost towns in southern Nevada that weren't included in the book because they're not known to be haunted. 
So let me ask you on that. And again, coming at it from a very ignorant place. Um, I know when I first, before I lived in the US, uh, I traveled over here and we were driving. It was a friend, uh, two friends and I, we were driving from Los Angeles to um, Nevada uh, to, you know, see the strip and gamble and dance and drink and all the live the life of debauchery. Uh, and as we came through, one of them mentioned a place called Calico. Mm-hmm. Is that a ghost yeah. town? Yeah, Calico, um, you would almost classify that as like a working ghost town because they've turned it into a tourist attraction. Okay. You can go go there, and that's actually in California. Oh, okay, interesting. So, yeah, it's right there on the border in California. Um, and just past that, you have um, what's called Gene. Uh, and that's in Nevada. That's on the Nevada side. Okay. And um, you have, uh, I'm like drawing a blank on it, but Whiskey Pete's. Okay. I'm sure you drove past that with the roller coaster and the casinos on either side. Oh, and gosh. going over the road. I can't remember. It was quite a number of years ago. Um, I think I was like freshly 21 as well, so a little bit blurry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Calico is on the California side, but that is an interesting place to go. And um, a friend of mine, actually, he wrote the book on Haunted Calico. There you go. So So is Calico a ghost town by your definition or like a haunted ghost town? It's a haunted ghost town and also by my definition. I would classify it as a working ghost town because there's several people who live and work there. Because there's, you still have the stores, the restaurants, the hotel. Very interesting. a lot of people still do what they can to keep that town going. Yeah, very interesting. Well, talking on specific places, is there a place mentioned in your book that you're like, this is my jam, this is my favorite one? It it would be the Florence Mine up in Goldfield. Um, We were just the Fed, I mean, literally days before COVID was announced, we were actually invited to come up to film a show for Discovery Channel that of course COVID shelved it. Yep, of course. <laughs> it's like, I mean, this was literally, we were there and then we came home and a week later we were on quarantine. Wow. So that, that's how close it was to COVID happening. But we were invited up and uh, the investigator and I that went, um, we he's the type of person, we could be in the dark. I mean, even no lights, no cameras, no nothing. And we would know where each other was. We would know how each other thought. So investigating this place with him was amazing. Um, we were the first team at the time to be invited in to investigate. It is a full-blown gold mine, but it's not operational. He, the owner, John Arick, has just kind of shut it down, and he does tours, and he's in the process of restoring it, and he's done a beautiful job. But while we were there, it was nonstop activity from the moment we got there to the moment we left. I mean, we were even experiencing strange things on our way there, almost wow. wondering, like, they didn't, you know, we had a bald ego swipe down right in front of our car and almost hit it. We had a car swerve into our lane and dry, almost run us off the road. So we're like, okay, someone doesn't want us in Goldfield, <laughs> you know. So it was kind of like, you know, even though that was just our minds going, but it just really felt like that. But when we were there, um, we went into a collapsed mine area, and we are all kind of, we were to a point where we could stand up. And I said, I want to go further back because it went probably about another 50 feet and it was uh, collapsed, so you couldn't go any further. And when I got back there, all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk. Trying to do an EVP session was awful. I started hearing men screaming, men crying. 
I started crying myself. They ended up getting me out of there. And once I was back with the others, I was perfectly fine. Uh, the, after we talked to the owner, it turns out that there was actually still possibility, they don't know for sure, bodies that were still there from when it collapsed. Gosh, wow. Because that was going to be yeah, my next so, question. If um, yeah. if there had been some tragedy that you think that there were, mm-hmm. there were you know, e- echoes of, of the people that lost their lives there but it, right. it yeah. definitely sounds like yes did die in it and they're not sure if they got everybody out yet or not he doesn't he doesn't know that and um it was just a very very eye-opening experience for me <laughs> the first time i ever felt like that during an investigation i bet and forgive me if you've already mentioned but um when did when was the the collapse was I it i want to say it would have been in the late 1800s early 1900s Okay, so wow, that would be, um, could you imagine if, yeah, if you were a family member or a descendant of somebody who potentially passed, but their body was never exhumed, that would bring quite a lot of closure, I imagine, uh, to families, not necessarily immediate families, but extended families um, or descendants Mm -hmm. again. Wow, yeah, there's something kind of eerie about whether they're still there or not. And that's something I don't know if the owner's ever going to even attempt to try to figure out. He, he's too busy restoring the actual mine shaft and and the like the hoist house. And it, like I said, it was just act. Sorry, my son is. It's okay. Eating <laughs> next to me. Um, but yeah, it it was a beautiful property on top of it, and that I covered quite extensively in the book because that was my favorite location. Even my publisher was like, do you really like this location? Mm. That's like with me. Um, It's so interesting because One Weird Chick was born out of a supernatural fascination, but also a true crime fascination and wanting to uh, do some uh, victim advocacy. And I, I felt there wasn't really a podcast that combined the two. So that was kind of the, the grounds on which uh, One Weird Chick was formed. And um, twice now I have covered Lizzie Borden on on One Weird Chick. And recently I went up north uh, because I, I too am in Florida like you and stayed at the Lizzie Borden B&B and met all the experts up there and, and really delved in even longer. And I feel like if I sat down to write a book, I don't think I'd be able to stop because there's so, a case like that, an infamous case like that, there's so much information. And like you alluded to, once upon a time there was no internet now there is, and it's so oversaturated with correct information, incorrect information, theories, conspiracies, and I wouldn't even know where to start. Because a case is as, as high profile as that is always, um, mm-hmm. the internet's always oversaturated with a whole variety of different things. But yeah, I can, I can imagine um, your publisher saying to you, yeah, you're into this one. I can, I can feel it, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's even funny with the newest book that I just just said I finished it and just sent it into the publisher. He he noticed that I have in there because in Vegas, you have to sign non-disclosure agreements if you're going to investigate locations especially on the strip because they don't want to know people to know they're haunted. Absolutely. And because they feel those like tourism. So there's one chapter I have in there undisclosed strip location. And it's the longest chapter of the book. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to definitely read that one when it comes out and try and work out. I mean, I haven't spent much time in Vegas, um, but I, I have some 
friends originally from Reno. So I'll go, here you go, read this. Tell me, tell me which one this one is. Tell me which one this one is. And what do you think? And it's funny because the investigator who went with me, he uh, wrote the foreword. And he's like, we weren't supposed to share this. I'm like, but you notice I don't give enough information that that could be anywhere on the strip. He's like, yeah, I guess. And I mean, let's be real, all of all of those venues pretty much, at least from my recollection, interlink. Like you can go from one straight into another. So like if there's something there, there it's probably gonna be hanging out everywhere. So <laughs> Right. Yeah, well I mean you also have all the mob activity and you know and, and that's it's it's everywhere. <laughs> I was going to say, speaking on Vegas, um, have you been, and I'm probably, his name is escaping me, but the, the guy from Ghost Adventures, you're laughing at me because you knew, you knew what I was going to say. Um, I had, I had a friend at work the other day and she came in and she's probably listening to this podcast going, Oh, you're so mean. She came in and she said, I'm going to Vegas on vacation. Um, I just got my waiver to go through Zach's museum and I was like, go on, read it to me. And you know, it, it's, it's a standard waiver that also then details, uh, that, uh, they're, they're not liable for death from possession. And I laughed, I laughed and with no disrespect to, to Zach or what he does. Um, I laughed because I, I went, do you realize there is a certain element of entertainment here where you are safe, but if they suddenly give you this waiver and they say, oh, you might be possessed by something, your level of excitement goes up. And she goes, no, 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 I could get possessed by something. And I went, okay, all right, you let me know after you go. But um, I myself would love to go through there because just of the history of all the things that he's collected is, is fascinating. And I know, yes, sure, he does it for entertainment value, but I know there's also some validity in what he does too. So yeah, have yeah. you have you been through? I haven't been through it. I've been by it, um, but I just never had a chance to get get through it because it's just schedules and everything. And I always, I think my problem was is I was holding out to go later in the day mm. because if he's not out on the road filming, he usually goes to the museum because his mom runs the gift shop. Oh, that's adorable. So he usually goes, yeah. I think she, at least I don't know if she still does, but she did at the time. But he was known to show up between four and five. Ah, oh, okay. Before the museum closed, and every time I wanted to go, it was at that time. But then we couldn't get there, and it just—it's you know, like I shouldn't have waited. But that—that that is also a, a very long chapter in my next book, going into the validity of some of the items that he does have. Interesting. Okay. Very interesting. Now, I want to briefly mention or briefly talk about your experience with the Warren Legacy Foundation uh, as you're a board member, which is, is wonderful. How did, you, how did you first get involved with, with the foundation? It was interesting. Um, I actually knew Joe Frankie uh, through Facebook. It was just one of those things, Joe and I, I don't even remember how Joe and I became friends on Facebook. It was just, he was there. And he had shared some videos of Chris talking and him and Chris were doing some, you know, live chats on Facebook during COVID. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to look into this a little bit more because I had, you know, growing up, we learned from the Warrens, you know, that right. was how we learned about the paranormals through their books and every, even though their books were for entertainment purposes also, there was still some, you know, once you can weed out, read between the lines, yes. they were very educational. 
So I wanted to learn more about it. And Lorraine, um, if I remember correctly, she had just passed. And so it was kind of curious. And it took me to a website and it said, be a part of the, be a part of the legacy. I was like, oh, what the heck? So I clicked on it, applied. I had talked with the um, leaders at the time. I hadn't talked to Chris yet. And then I had interviewed with Chris afterwards. And I started off with them as their intake, not intake coordinator, but I did all the intake calls. So a case would come in, they'd send it to me and I'd be the one who would do the one to two hour call with the client online to get all the information we needed for the entire application and then pass it on to the right person. And from there, it just grew and developed. I had done a whole bunch of other work for them, um, as well as helping put up the, uh, setting up the administrative team. Mm. I was a regional director for a while, and I just kind of needed to step back because I had other things I needed to do. Yeah. And I'm, you know, staying on the board so I can still help people. But that's you know, awesome. It, it's, it's a really good foundation, and they do help people all around the world. That's incredible. Um, did you, in your in your time there, get to see any of their infamous um, trinkets? I don't even know what the right word to say is. Um, uh, souvenirs, I suppose, from any of their investigations? No, no, Tony has all of those and he is a completely different entity than the foundation I was part of. Fair enough. I, I I was like, ooh, do you have an in like with the with all those cool things that like you're never allowed to no. see? <laughs> I, I wish I had. The closest I got to was holding Lorraine's uh, rosary. Oh wow, I'm sure that was a very um yeah. that was a would have been a very powerful feeling, not just specifically because it's Lorraine's, but um because of of right. the history of of something like that. Yeah, I think, I don't know if she cared which investigations she carried it on, but I know uh, she did carry it with her quite often. Yeah, very cool. Now, this is a little bit of a random uh, segue, but I was scrolling through your Instagram, and I perhaps should have asked you about this earlier when we, you were talking about some of this, this the EVP that uh, you captured on other cases. But uh, on your Instagram, um, when I was preparing for this interview, I saw a post that you said, what's the creepiest EVP you've ever recorded? And this is probably like, an, I did a deep dive. So this Instagram post could have been years ago. I was just, you know, when you scroll. I was gonna say it probably was because I haven't posted an Instagram forever. There you go. I actually forgot about my Instagram. You know, you hear kids talking about oh, falling down the rabbit hole of like social media. And I'm, I'm not as active as I used to be on social media just because it's, you know, it, it can be really, Dehabilitating for your your mental health, but um, right. like I said, when I was preparing for this interview, I, I looked through your Instagram, and I was just scrolling. I just fell down that rabbit hole, and I was like, "Cool, let's see what else she said." Okay, cool. This is this is from a case. Okay, but I am curious. You spoke about EVP before, mm -hmm. but what's some of the creepiest EVP that you've recorded? Um, there's one, and it's actually funny. Uh, my son, who's sitting next to me, can. Uh, go on in this one too but we were at a location um one of the many undisclosed locations in vegas and we had the recorder it was a good six feet away from anybody so you know the chances of someone's stomach growling or anything like that was you know near impossible it right. had to have been loud and someone would have said something you know whose stomach was that it, you know if that was the case um and didn't hear anything while we were there and when we came home, we're reviewing the evidence. It sounds like uh, what you would expect a pterodactyl to sound like. 
Oh, goodness. Okay. It was like a growl and a cawing type at the same time. <laughs> it was really weird. And, and, you know, I played it for the rest of the team, and nobody knows what it could be. Interesting. It, it was just, yeah, it was really interesting. And then um, not so much as eerie or creepy, one of my favorite EVPs we've ever captured is we were investigating a location that was um, close to where Tupac had died. Mm, mm-hmm. And one of the investigators, you know, we were closing up, but I left my camera on. I don't even know why I left my camera on, because you can see in the video that it was hung upside down and it was capturing everything behind me as we were walking out of the location. And one of the investigators had said, wouldn't it have been cool if we were able to reach Tupac? Because we had been trying, you know, hey, Tupac, if you're here, you know, talk to us. And right after he had said that, clear as can be, I'm right here. <gasps> oh, that just gave me chills. Yeah. So whether it was Tupac or not, we don't know. But it was just very coincidental that he had said that and got an intelligent response. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah, no, that just gave me full body chills. I love that. Okay, well, random, another random question for you, because it it just seems to be my go to. You something you said earlier sort of made me think of this and I have covered this case on uh, One Weird Chick before. It's the case of the Sally House. Uh, I believe it was in um, Kansas. Can't remember quite where in Kansas because I covered the case quite a while ago. Now, what was interesting in that case is um, the house was haunted, allegedly or not. I I don't know because I wasn't there to experience it. And apparently there's no supernatural... um, goings on that are happening in this property since but um what struck me as unusual was this family this husband and wife and their and their infant baby continued to live in the house and treat the entity there almost like a second child and meanwhile the husband was being attacked by whatever was there and so on and so forth but like the wife would buy it toys and talk to it and sort of mother it is that just totally out of this world? Or is that something that you recommend for people who are like, hey, we've got nowhere else to go. This is our house. We either have to just get this thing out of here or we just have to live alongside of it. Yeah, my recommendation is always, um, if you don't want it to bother you, don't interact with it. Don't give it a reason to communicate with you. Um, I know in our own home, there's some strange things that sometimes happen. we don't even investigate to see if it was explainable or not. We just ignore it. Right. You know, because I don't want, you know, my home is protected. It's, I don't want, you know, you don't come here. You're not welcome. So um, the best way anybody can do anything is ignore it. You know, I know it's hard, but eventually, you know, I I view spirits um, and even negative spirits and sometimes demons even you can put in this category um, is they're no different than a child wanting attention. Right. They're going to bug you and bug you and bug you for attention. And if they're not getting a reaction out of you and you're just acting like as if nothing's happening, they're eventually going to give up and find someone who will respond and give them the attention they seek. So by ignoring it, you're not instigating more behavior though, right? Because I would think that if I was ignored, I'd want to get louder and louder and louder until some reaction happened. It depends on the spirit and the whole situation, but it might get louder for a little bit, 
but eventually, I mean, if you're bugging someone, you can get as loud as you want. And if you're screaming at the top of your lungs and they're still not, you know, acting as if you're there, I mean, you're eventually going to give up. Yeah, that you that know. is true. Yeah. Yeah, but giving um, them a reason to stick around is why they tend to stick around. And that's, you know, all along like with the Annabelle case. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, the doll started showing, you know, activity and they still treated the doll. Like, you know, they put her, they had, she had a table sitting at the dining room table and, you know, it was, that's all kind of spun downhill after they continued encouraging the activity of whatever was inside the doll. It's interesting that you met her. Um, I attended an an event when Lorraine was still, uh, Lorraine Warren was still with us, um, in which Annabelle was shown. And I have to admit, um, she's... Well, first of all, she looks nothing like the the t- the, the movie version, uh, which, yeah. again, I know that was a directive cho- choice to make her look more scary, which congrats, congratulations, because she looked terrifying. She was actually really frightening. Um, but when I saw her, um, I was surprised at how drawn I was to her. It, w- it was interesting. And whether that was something that I was projecting because I was expecting this big, you know, um, this big thing, but I, I remember being told, don't touch her, don't touch the case, don't open it, like just leave her, go take your photos and then you're good to go. Um, but I, I felt so drawn and all I wanted to do was like pick her up and hold her. So it, it's interesting what energy, <laughs> well, it wasn't that it was like, I don't know. It was Again, I'm, I'm probably sounding like a complete nutcase, but it was just, I wanted to hold her and like mother her. I was very drawn to like this poor little girl and this, this, these things that had, you know, um, had been said about her that, you know, may or may not be true. It was, it was just a weird, bizarre feeling. And, um, it's crazy. Cause I look back at the photos that I have with her and I'm like six feet away from her case. I'm like, that's so weird that I said I was so drawn to her and I'm still standing so far away from her. Um, but yeah, yeah, that whole, that whole, um, story with her is, is fascinating. So what is coming up for you then? You are an insanely busy woman working on 20 million different things, but what is coming up that people can keep an eye on? Um, we are actually relaunching Ghost Education 101. Our first episodes tonight. Oh wow! Um, we air every other yeah. We air every other week, but we are gonna. We're kind of like just coming back tonight to announce we're coming back in January because I'm having knee surgery next week. Oh gosh! And we'll be taking the rest of the year off. Um, so that's coming, and then also I host Exploring the Paranormal. It's on WLTK Radio, and it's every Tuesday morning from 10 to noon. So you can catch that as well. Um, I just. The book I sent off to the publisher recently was Ghosts and Legends of the Vegas Valley. And that talks about all the different mob stories and all the, you know, the downtown Vegas area, as well as Henderson and Boulder City and all the locations through there. The book I'm writing out right now is Haunted Florida Lighthouses. And the Vegas book will be out February 13th and the Lighthouse book should be out next fall. And um, I was going to say again, forgive my ignorance, but I don't imagine... Uh, Nevada having many lighthouses, so I'm assuming the lighthouses are are sort yeah. of haunted Florida lighthouses. Haunt, oh, Florida. haunted Florida. Sorry, I did yeah. miss you saying that. I was like, <laughs> I don't know. If- I'm shifting gears now that we live here. <laughs> you're fine. I was like, I don't imagine there'd be any lighthouses in Nevada, but girl, you're from Australia, and maybe you just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the lighthouse in Mount Dora. 
Right. Understood. Understood. And um, uh, for for those of you who are international listening, uh, Florida has an abundance of lighthouses and they are uh, they're definitely spooky. So I'll be keeping an eye out for that. Now, if somebody wanted to purchase one of your books or um, catch one of your shows, I know you said radio. Um, but again, for people who are not within the state or people who are not within the country, uh, are those kinds of things available online? Yes, um, for all the information on what I'm doing, if you follow me on Facebook, it's at Dr. Heather Lee, or go to heatherleadphd.com. I have everything listed there as well, um, but WLTK Radio is WLTK-DB.com. Fantastic. So you can find that online as well. And then they can work out time differences for them. Is, yeah, and Ghost Education 101 is on Facebook. Fantastic. Now... One other thing before we wrap up, you mentioned you were uh, leading some classes mm -hmm. at uh, I Mystic U. Right. I had um, wor been working on some classes. I do have my shamanic life coaching up there, and um, a whole bunch of other people have classes up there as well. I know there's protection classes, Reiki classes. It's all geared towards my friend who started the school um, wants to gear towards more of the witchcraft and metaphysical aspect of it and then she has me doing the paranormal courses we're in the process of finishing up my course and hopefully that's up no later than next spring Fantastic. but it's going to be like i'm designing it the reason why it's taking so long is i'm designing it to be 13 months long right and instead of paying for the class in one lump sum you you know it's 25 dollars a month for 13 months and every time you know it auto charges the next month will drop on your uh platform that also, yeah, that helps because uh, I know myself once upon a time being a college student with they're like, great, you have to pay all in advance right now for your entire year. And you're like, where do I get that kind of money? So, yeah, I, I didn't want it that way. So I kind of I kind of set it up that way. So that way it, you get a little bit each month and just enough to, you know, it, I also give homework, but it's, you know, <laughs> of things for you to think about more or less than to actually do homework. But yeah. And I feel like when you're enrolling in a course as specific as what you're offering, you're there because you really do want to learn. So homework isn't as yeah. uh, as tumultuous yeah. as it is when you're like, you know, in college or school and they're like, read this and write a book report. And you're like, oh, this is the worst book ever. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, they never picked good books growing up. No, they never did, and they're, they're still not. Um, I, I, you know, dabble in the education system here in Florida, and some of the books they tell me they're reading, I'm like, oh, gosh, you couldn't pay me to read that. Oh, goodness. If somebody wants your help, uh, an investigation or anything like that, what is the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, probably Facebook, which would be, you could also Exploration Paranormal is on Facebook as well and that's the team you can send us a message there and if we can't help you or if we're not local to you I know people all around the world that can help wonderful well Heather it's been a pleasure chatting to you thank you so much for your time this has been a really eye-opening experience I loved it yeah. oh perfect thank you so much for having me thank you for joining me for this exclusive episode of One Weird Chick I'm your host, Jessica Fernando, and until next time, stay spooky. One Weird Chick's opening theme is created by Brielle Johnson, and logo is by Lauren Adams. Follow One Weird Chick on Instagram and Facebook 
for more.